Join me in Luke chapter 12. The Gospel of Luke chapter 12. We continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. This morning we find ourselves in chapter 12 and we will be looking at verses 13 through 34. Our key words for our worshipers in training are greed, worry, and anxious. The title of our sermon is Greed and Worry, Two Sides, Same Coin. Now we encounter this morning a text in the Gospel of Luke that seems to be somewhat randomly placed in the overall flow of Luke's narrative. And yet we encounter here what Jesus conveys as some of the most important principles that we will come across. They speak loudly and uncomfortably to us as a people who live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. Jesus, we will see, uses this opportunity to respond to a question presented to him by a young man. And he uses the opportunity to teach his disciples about the dangers of greed and worry. Now, I recognize in my own life that the sin of covetousness and the anxiousness that grows out of a fleshly desire to hoard all that I can find and keep for myself is one of the easiest things to disguise, to justify, and to completely ignore as sin at all. When it's the way of life for the majority of the people around us, it seems acceptable. It, it feels normal. In fact, it can at times seem necessary. But in our text this morning, Jesus will make us a little bit uncomfortable, I presume, and, and he will provide us with a rebuke. He will present a warning, and in the end, he will give us an encouraging promise about our place as his children in the kingdom of God. So let's begin reading in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so we see a man who from the crowd has demanded that Jesus, that he settle a a dispute between he and his brother, that he make a judgment here. He was obsessed with receiving what he considered to be his rightful portion of the family's inheritance. And he wanted Jesus to hold court right then and there in the midst of all of the people. And if you remember from last week, this is in the midst of thousands and thousands of people, Luke said. So many people that they were trampling each other to be near Jesus. And this man cries out in the midst of all of them, asking Jesus to tell his brother to give him what he thought was his. Clearly, Jesus identifies the man's covetous heart And he's unwilling to be the arbiter in this family dispute. Now, Jesus makes an interesting remark here, doesn't he? He says, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Well, certainly that doesn't imply that Jesus isn't the man's judge. 
He is the ultimate judge. He is the arbiter when he returns to judge the quick and the dead. But in his earthly years of ministry, his task among men was very different than that. And settling the legal matters of a domestic dispute over a dead father's possessions was not part of what Jesus was here to do. Moreover, getting one's legal fair share isn't really a good thing when the motivation is a covetous spirit. And it was clear to Jesus that this is exactly what was going on with the man. So Jesus speaking to the many thousands who were gathered around him said in verse 15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Uh, Jesus is talking here about lusting after more and more money and possessions, living a life in perpetual transgression of the 10th commandment of God. It's greed. And the Bible is filled with exhortations and warnings regarding greed, covetousness. It's an evil snare. It it envelops the heart. It tempts us to make the trajectory of our lives about the abundance of possessions instead of a faithful, trusting pursuit of God and God alone. And while we will all rightly and very quickly give assent to this reality, nearly all of us are prone to live completely opposite of what we know to be true. But here's what's interesting in all of this. Think about what the Apostle Paul says about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. He writes this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So here we have a very clear biblical statement that Jesus is responsible for creating all things. So that includes us, doesn't it? So wouldn't he know? Wouldn't he know what he's talking about in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15 when our Creator is telling us this thing that you're pursuing, this is not what life is all about? Wouldn't he know that above all other voices that we hear? Should we not hear most clearly the voice of him who created us saying, I'm the designer, I am the manufacturer, and I'm telling you, if you're using your life in this way, you are not living in accordance with your intended design. Your life is not about how much stuff you have and how much stuff you can hoard. It's much more important than that. Don't covet. Don't be greedy. It only leads to destruction. The book of Proverbs views greed as a dividing line between those who are righteous and those who are evil. The writer of Proverbs writes, All day long he craves and craves the the greedy one, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. The Apostle Paul repeatedly condemns greed. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. He exhorted the Colossians, put to death 
Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. He told the young pastor Timothy, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You see, brothers and sisters, the condition of the heart is judged by the kinds of desires that hold sway over it. We all have desires. That's undeniable. Desires are not the issue. The issue is what you desire. And what you assume will bring you the greatest satisfaction in this life. It's an indication of the state of your heart. If your heart is satisfied with ungodly and wicked things, it's an ungodly and wicked heart. If it's satisfied with God, it is a godly and sanctified heart. As Henry Scogel puts it, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its desires. So the question we all have to ask ourselves as we consider the issue of covetousness and greed is this, what do I desire? What am I seeking my satisfaction in? So while Jesus' focus here is possessions, we need to recognize that it's not necessarily possessions of the kind that you can walk into the store and purchase all the time. It certainly is, but it's not just that. We covet all sorts of things, don't we? It may very well be your friend's way of life, your neighbor's spouse, your sister's children, your boss's education and success. And lest you think you're not prone to this, be reminded by the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We are all prone to the great sin of covetousness. Jesus goes on in verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So to illustrate his point, Jesus tells this parable about a foolish man with tremendous wealth. When the man's income increases, which is his crop, he builds bigger and bigger barns to store it. His assumption is that he has found the way to peace and security and freedom from all fear, from all worry. So he says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take it easy. Feel free to fritter away the rest of your life. Don't worry about others. Be concerned about yourself. Eat, drink, be merry all the rest of the days of your life. You see, the man's contentment, he thought, was in those things that he assumed he could control. His investment, his possessions. Brothers and sisters, we have to stop and ask ourselves, when I get more, when I get a raise, when I have an inheritance, when I get more, what is my immediate reaction? 
most often, if we're honest, it probably is that we keep it or spend it on ourselves entirely. In other words, when we see our income rising and rising, we are more prone to funnel all of it to more and more possessions or to make a larger and larger savings account like the rich men. Instead of thinking first about the kingdom of God and the advance of the gospel. Now, inevitably, the question might arise in your heart as I preach these very things. You might be saying, but Pastor Nick, you have a nice house. And you're right, I do. You have two nice, well-functioning vehicles. Yes, thank you to Effingham Auto Sales. Indeed, I do. But let's be clear. Jesus's point is not to shame us for owning things or even nice things. That's not the issue here. Jesus is raising our awareness of our covetous, hoarding hearts to humble us to recognize that we are far more prone to worship idols that we can buy in the mall than we realize. He's getting us to think about the reality that most of us, when it comes to what we have and what we keep and hold on to, we very rarely think about those things in relationship to the kingdom of God. Maybe that's not true for you. I hope it's not. But the reality is that some of us sitting here this morning are very prone to this. Brothers and sisters, I say in all love that some of you are sinning against God by refusing to give up anything at all from your bank account and of your possessions for the sake of his kingdom so that you can store up ample goods in the end that you might eat and drink and be merry. If you're a Christian, please hear me very clearly. If you're not giving out of your regular income to advance the gospel through the means of the local church, you are week in and week out sinning against God. You have willfully determined in your heart that your desired outcome in life will be determined by your storing more and more in bigger and bigger barns instead of trusting God to provide for your every need in the days and weeks and months and years to come. Now again, hear me clearly. It is not wrong that we would save and invest and that we would have an inheritance to leave our children. In fact, that's something the Bible calls us to do. But is your saving and investing keeping you from faithfully and sacrificially giving of your possessions for the sake of God's kingdom? I'm not talking about your time and your spiritual gifts. Those are required of us as well. But what we, what we will see at the end of this text that we are looking at this morning is the undeniable reality that our spending and our saving of money says a lot about our spiritual condition. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is your treasure in your 401k plan, a Roth IRA, gold and silver? Is your treasure on hangers in your closet or on wheels in the parking lot right now? Is your treasure contained under your roof at home? Brothers and sisters, beware. This is Jesus' warning. Beware. 
For the man in Jesus' parable, building new barns was certainly a logical and prudent thing to do given the circumstances. He had an overabundance of crops, so it was a good idea. But his conclusion, that was the problem. His conclusion as to what would be done with all that was amassed was not okay. The real danger lay in what was missing. There was no thought of sharing and no thought of stewardship. He had no concern for the poor, for those who were ill, for the naked who were all around him. It was all about himself. I want to point something else out here. This is the only place in the Bible where retirement is spoken of. And it's in the context of disapproval. Now, of course, the Bible recognizes that we age, we slow down, changes need to be made in our lives as a result. But retiring to a life of self-indulgence, to eat and drink and be merry all the rest of our days of life, find no favor with God whatsoever. The problem with this man's retirement package is that it was a ticket for him to a life of hedonism. In the scriptures, to eat, drink, and be married is a description of squandering your life and your money away, not using either in the way that God has intended it. A retirement that lives for self is unbiblical, it's immoral. If the rich man had survived the night, he would have gone on in a life of bored hedonism. But aside from that, the glaring fault of the foolish man was that he was living as if there was no God at all. Psalm 14.1 tells us the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The man had no fear of God. The grand liberating fear of God that Jesus commended us to us in the text that we explored last week. And, And since the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, he was singularly unequipped for living his life. All of the success that this man had arrived at, he did without ever thinking where his life was headed, other than that he wanted to live a life of lavish luxury and hedonism. But listen to what Jesus says of the rich fool, beginning in verse 20. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have Prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. God will call that person a fool and take away his soul. He's not rich toward God. He really has no concern for God at all in reality. His concern is himself, what he owns, what he possesses, what he can surround himself with so that he might have a false sense of ease and security. Greed is a powerful trap. It will devour anyone who's not watchful. It will devour those whose eyes and hearts are not set on the eternal kingdom of God, but only concerned with the temporal fleeting kingdoms of self. When we begin to understand the sinfulness of greed, we begin to understand all the more our desperate, desperate need for a Savior. 
This is the grace of God to reveal to us just how sinful we are by presenting us with our sin. And the more we see our sin, the more of our need for Jesus is made vivid and intense for us. This is the very effect the 10th commandment had on the Apostle Paul, revealing to him what is at the heart of his greed, namely covetousness. Paul, Paul went through the first part of his life assuming that he could measure up to the perfect standard of God's law. He did not murder. He did not commit adultery. He did not steal. He did not lie. At least he didn't do any of these things outwardly. But then Paul says he came to the 10th commandment and the perfect law of God exposed to him his utter sin. Here's how he defines that experience. He explains it in Romans chapter 7. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So you see, Paul recognized that the Ten Commandment took away from us any notion whatsoever that we were able to keep God's law on our own. Francis Schaeffer wrote of this, that thou shalt not covet is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs a savior. The average such moral man who has lived comparing himself to other men and comparing himself to a rather easy list of rules can feel like Paul that he is getting along all right. But suddenly, when he is confronted with the inward command not to covet, he is brought to his knees. Friends, there are some of you here today who live consistently lives of nothing more than the accumulation and abundance of your possessions. You may even be contemplating and dreaming about ways to store it all up in bigger and bigger barns. But the warning from your creator is very clear. This is not how you were meant to live. And it may very well be that tomorrow your soul will be required of you. That longing that you feel, the need that you have, that you are seeking to fulfill every time you go out to get the next best thing, it will never be fulfilled by that thing. It may be neat, it may be useful, it may be very helpful, it may in and of itself, be a really wonderful thing to have, to own. But 100% of the time, it will fail to bring you what your heart is ultimately longing for. Only Jesus Christ can provide what man truly needs. And unless your joy is found in Christ alone, you will be found wanting. You will spend your life crawling after your next desired possession. The call in your life is to repent and turn to Jesus. Believe the gospel and be saved. It is your only hope. It is the only way you will know life as God has intended to be because you were not meant to live for the abundance of your possessions. You were meant to live to the glory of God that you could hold possessions in this world very loosely. And look to God with a thankful heart, seeing beyond all the gifts that he has given to you, to the giver of those great gifts. 
that you would see your things not to be enjoyed as idols, but as signposts pointing to our creator, to our giver, to the provider of all things. You see, again, Jesus is not against us having things. He's against all of our things having us. He goes on in verse 22. He said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more worth are you than the birds? So now Jesus is flipping the coin over. Instead of talking about greed, he now addresses the other side of the coin. Worry. How is worry related to greed? Well, it seems as though Jesus is really making this the same issue. Why does the man feel the need to keep all that he is able to stuff into bigger and bigger barns? Why was he so concerned about having ample goods? Because he didn't believe that he would have what he needed for tomorrow. To live his life of ease that he wanted if he didn't store it up in an overabundance today. Remember, that was the issue with the Israelites in Egypt. They continued to complain over and over and over that they didn't have what they need. So what did God do? He provided it for them. He rained manna from heaven and he told them each day, go collect what you need. It will sustain you. But before the Lord's day, before the Sabbath day, collect double portion that you need not work. But what did they do? They went out and they collected all that they could get. They sought to hoard it up because they didn't believe that God would provide what they needed tomorrow. They saw it was there. They took the opportunity to get all that they could. But what happened to it? It rotted. It spoiled. It was no good. They failed to trust God because of their uncertainty about what he would provide tomorrow. Jesus here uses the same sort of reasoning that he did in the passage we looked at last week. Consider the ravens, he said. Remember last week he said, consider the sparrows. They're cheap. They're they're dirty birds and God cares about them. So how much more does he care about you, child of God, his greatest of all creation? Notice also he uses the same sort of language that we saw back in verse 14. Again, he's telling us as our creator, this is not what life is all about. Your life doesn't consist of what you're going to eat next or what you're going to put on in the morning. It is so much more than that. Why are you worried about food? Why are you worried about clothing? God will provide all of these things. He goes on in verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. So Jesus is pointing to the absurdity of worry. You can't add anything to your life through worry. Truth be told, it's a fact that excessive worry shortens your life. And we all know the terrible desolation it leaves in its path. Worriers fear, worriers suffer, worriers wither and twist and die. Worry takes a terrible toll on each of us. And we see it every day. We see it in ourselves when our our minds are so busy that we're unable to even complete sentences or the distractedness of our eyes when we're in a conversation, our inability to concentrate, our missed appointments, the hours we waste in front of the TV or computer screen or laying in bed because we're just stunned with worry the second pack of cigarettes we turn to or the extra drink that pushes us over the edge. Worry is not a virtue of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Worry is not something to be proud of. If your mantra of life is that you are a worry wart, there's a problem. It dries up your life as God has intended it to be. It pulls us away from trusting in God as our only help, as our sole provider in this life. And it leaves us instead looking to worldly wisdom and practices to relieve all of our stress. Why do you suppose things like casinos and lottery are so popular? I know someone who always says to me, when I win the lottery, I'm going to do whatever. They really have in their mind that they are going to hit it big one day. But is it any wonder that an estimated 70% of people who win or inherit large sums of money are bankrupt within five years? You see, the same worry that was plaguing them about their finances has been revealed for what it truly was. Covetousness. Greed. How does someone who before was just hoping for enough extra cash to pay off that month's electric bill all of a sudden go bankrupt five years later after winning a $100 million? The Proverbs are filled with wisdom regarding this sort of thing, regarding financial growth and godly increase as opposed to a lifestyle of waiting on the right numbers to hit so you can have instant gain. Proverbs 28.20 says, A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Proverbs 13.11, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Wisdom, patience, endurance, trusting the Lord to provide. Jesus calls us to remember God. And his care over us. He calls us to consider the lilies. Small flowers of ravishing beauty. 
and fragrance, with ornate colors and, and textures to behold. He says that Solomon, the richest man to have ever lived, didn't even wear clothes as a king that came close to the beauty of such flowers. But those flowers, they existed without any concern or worry, though it is true of them that they are only passing ornaments in the field. They don't last long. A few days, maybe a week, and then they're gone. We have day lilies at our house. They last a day. No concern. Isaiah reminds us the grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. So in light of their magnificent transitory adornment, Jesus' logic is this. If God so clothes the grass with beauty and all that they need, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow will be cut down and thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. You see, his followers are not only citizens of earth, but more importantly, are citizens of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, our lives are not temporary. They're eternal. God will certainly see to it that we as his children are properly clothed, that we're properly cared for. The phrase here, how much more, is a huge argument as to why we are not to worry. Martin Luther quaintly said of the lesson of the flowers, he said this, it seems that the flowers stand there and make us blush and become our teachers. Thank you, flowers, you who are to be devoured by the cows. God has exalted you very highly that you become our masters and our teachers. We are to consider the flowers, and in considering them, we are to consider ourselves. If we persist in worry, it is because we are of little faith. We do not believe God's word. We do not believe that he is in control. We don't believe that he is capable of taking care of us. We do not believe what his word tells us about his love and care for his own. And disbelief is the midwife of worry. Now again, Jesus reiterates his command to not worry with another illustration that he recites in verses 29 and 30. Look at those again. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. In other words, worry is absolutely useless, especially for the Christian. God knows our every need and has never fallen short in providing it for us. The worrier is perpetually going unfed and unclothed. Worry loads the present with the weight of the future. And when you load the troubles you are anticipating in the future upon the troubles you are presently experiencing, you give yourself an impossible burden to bear. Jesus tells us elsewhere, we simply do not have the grace today to handle what we will encounter tomorrow. 
Today has enough troubles of its own. Do not worry about tomorrow. Focus on today. Jesus' exhortation is clear. Obsessive worry about food and clothing is a pagan thing. He says all the nations of the world seek after these things. We are not to worry. We are to live like Christians, trusting that God will care for us. He goes on in verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The context of Jesus' promise is not about luxuries, but about the essentials of life. We Americans have many, many luxuries. But to imagine that we have come across those luxuries in life because we have done a really good job in seeking God's kingdom is a wicked delusion. If that were the case, a mafia don's luxuries would be the result of his spiritual priorities. But the transcending point of what Jesus is teaching is that one's freedom from worry about the things of life come from seeking his kingdom first. Those who make the kingdom of God their foremost aim in life have no worry about life's essentials. If we seek the development of His rule in our lives and the lives of others through the gospel, if we pray and and we work to this end as good disciples, we need not worry at all. One's commitment to the kingdom of God is the key to a life free of worry and anxiety. And in perhaps a most shocking manner, Jesus concludes his teaching by exhorting his followers to a life, not of hoarding and storing, but of giving as the crowning liberation from worry over things. All of us are called to divest ourselves For a few of us, it might literally mean selling all that we have, giving it to the poor, and moving to live among the unreached people groups of the world that they might hear the gospel. For others, it means that you simply loosen your grip on your possessions, to hold on to everything that you have loosely, that you would share what you have, to use your possessions to serve others and to give. For others, it means that you need to do what you have left unpreviously undone and start giving of your income for the spread of the gospel. Heavenly treasure is what awaits us. Heavenly treasure will endure. Nothing can take it away. Heavenly purses do not have holes in them. Such is the treasure that a generous lifestyle stores up. Our giving here means we are storing everything up in eternity. And so we are called to be generous with everything. Our money, our homes, all of our possessions, our luxuries, our time, our lives. Everything we have must be committed to Jesus Christ. 
And if you've never done it before, pray through all that you have, especially your most treasured possessions, and put everything at the feet of Jesus so that it can be used as He desires. It is, in Jesus' logic, the best investment strategy that anyone can have. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Nothing, not one thing you could mention surpasses the joy of all that God promises to His children. So when we greedily hoard and worry and stress, we settle for lesser things. How foolish. We're only shorting ourselves. So the fight for contentment is the fight to see and believe that Christ is more to be desired than the promises of whatever we hold on to. The faith and sight that Jesus commends comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so we look to the word and we ponder and we plead with God that the eyes of our hearts would be opened to see the superior satisfaction that is found in him alone. There are many people throughout the history of the church who have understood this. There are some of you in this church who really get this. I want to close with an example from the great missionary William Carey who understood that to give was far greater than to receive and to live his life for the benefit of others in the advance of the gospel was the great call of the Christian life. In October 1795, William Carey received a packet of letters that was sent to him in India. One of the letters he received criticized him for engaging in affairs of trade instead of devoting full time to his missionary work. So William Carey had a small uh, side job to raise extra funds. And when he received this letter, he was hurt. He He was angered at his accusations. If he had not worked, he and his family would have starved since the support from England was so slow and small and sporadic in arriving to him. And he wrote back these words. It is a constant maxim with me that if my conduct will not vindicate itself, it is not worth vindicating. I only say that after my family's obtaining a bare allowance, my entire income and some months, much more, goes for the purposes of the gospel in supporting persons to assist in the translation of the Bible, to write copies of it, to teach school in the like. In other words, he was taking all of his income and paying others to help him with the gospel ministry. I mention this to show that the love of money has not prompted me to pursue the plan that I have engaged in. I am indeed poor and shall always be so till the Bible is published in Bengali and Hindostani, and the people want no further instruction from me. Wow. I pray that we are challenged by the radical words of a life like William Carey's, prompted by the truth of what Christ has taught us this morning. It is a radical call to remember that we are fighting a war for the eternal souls of men and women. 
And that we are to use our possessions in a way that shows that we believe this to be true. What would it look like if we all prayed to have hearts like William Carey? After an allowance for me and my family, my whole income goes for the purposes of the gospel. That's a dangerous prayer. Heart and treasure always go together. And if our treasure is in heaven, brothers and sisters, we have nothing, nothing to worry about. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is complete and teaches us all that is necessary for life and godliness. I thank you, God, that in your word, that you challenge each and every one of us where we are. That it is intensely practical to our daily lives. That it brings great conviction where necessary. It pierces through joint and marrow. And it cuts our souls where we need to be cut. And yet you don't leave us to suffer and to wallow in sin, but rather you apply the healing balm of your word, of the truth of the gospel, of the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus, of all that is ours because of what you have worked in us, that our works that overflow from hearts of thankfulness might be to the praise of your glorious grace. I pray, God, that you would help each and every one of us. We are all in need of this. That you would help us to loosen our grip on the things that we possess. That we would see them as they are. They're merely fleeting pleasures in this life. May we see them for what you have designed them to be. Things that we look to that give us a greater thankfulness for you. That give us greater pleasure in you. That remind us that we have nothing apart from you. So God, take away from us worry, all anxiousness. That we might rest in you alone that we might live upon you and all of your provision, knowing that it all comes from your hand and it's all for the good of your people. We as your people want to love and trust you more and to be a people who live and strive to see that the kingdom of God is proclaimed far and wide and that the work of the gospel is brought to all the nations. Father, help us to remember what you've taught us this morning. Challenge us where we are weak. Give us strength to trust and endure for your sake, for the sake of the gospel, for your glory, and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.